so about a week and a half ago, um, I was in the living room and one of my kids, my, one of my sons said, Dad, the dryer's making a funny noise. And uh, so I was like, funny like it's telling a joke or funny like not funny? And he's like, I think it's probably funny, not funny. And so I went in the back and, and the dryer was running, you know, but the, but the basket wasn't spinning. And so um, being the mechanical genius that I am, I pulled off the cover and, and checked in there and not the belts were fine and it was hooked up and that the motor would run, but there's no connection between the two. Now, I just tell you that my relationship with our with my dryer has been somewhat tenuous over the years because um, it needs a lot of tender, loving care. Um, that's my way of saying it's a slouch. And uh, it's always very needy. And so it's always been a problem from like the day we bought it. It always needs help. And, and it's on a first name basis with our repairman. And so you know, I kind of went back and I called the repairman, a couple of guys, and they're like, look, you know, it's time to part ways with the dryer. It's just time to say goodbye to it. And, and uh, so here's what I realized about our dryer. Like, I didn't lose any sleep <laughs> over replacing the dryer. Like, I realized my, my relationship with my dryer is pretty much a performance-based relationship. When it performs well, I'm happy with it. And when it, when it doesn't, then there's just no way to be happy with it. And so I took my wife out and, you know, it was time. We knew it was coming. So got a new dryer. And yesterday, uh, Lowe's came and, and they, they took the old one out. And as they, you know, took it out, it's like, didn't bother me at all. It's like, so long. And because my relationship with my appliances is you work and we're good and you don't work and we're not good. It's not like, not like I'm sitting down with my dryer and say, you know, man, maybe we should just have a cup of tea and talk about this because maybe you've had a bad day. Maybe it's been a, a rough month. Maybe we put too many clothes in you. You know, like I don't care about any of that because it's just all about performance. I'm like, goodbye. And, and I kind of wondered as a new dryer came in, I'm like, oh, look at your new dryer. I wonder if it was feeling a little insecure. Like, um, I don't know if this is the best place to be. But I, now here's the thing. I say it because, well, it's a dryer, so what, right? But have you ever felt like that in, in your own life? Have you ever felt like some of your relationships and some of the things in your life are all based on you performing well? And if you don't perform well, then things aren't going to go well for you. Have you ever had a relationship like that where it's all about your performance and if you don't perform well and do well and do what they want, then you know they're probably going to just cut you loose like I cut the dryer loose because the relationship is performance-based. And, and you know, this is, we know this because this is our society. From a very young age, we learn that there are just parts of life that are like that. School's like that, Right. Your education is like that. You know that when you, if you go to a class, you go to history class, and if you don't do well on the test, it's not like your teacher's going to go, yeah, but you know your outfit's coordinated, so I'll give you an A because I, you know, I like it. It's you know it doesn't work that way. You don't you don't get the grade, you don't study, you don't it's just the way it works. School's performance based, and and passing the class is performance based, and the grade. The GPA, if you want the GPA, you're going to have to perform. And if you want the degree and you want to go to the right college and you want a scholarship, you know, on and on, it's all about performing. Because in our education system, that's just the way it works. And, and then unfortunately, it doesn't, it's not like when you graduate from high school or college, you don't have to deal with that anymore, right? Because some of you may have jobs that are performance-based. Maybe some of you do, right? Where actually to get the job in the first place, you had to do pretty good on the interview. And, and, and then to keep the job, 
You have to perform. It's not like if you have a sales job and you just decide, I really don't like selling, you know, selling stuff anymore. I don't like it. I, I like kind of doing eBay on the internet. So I, like if you decide you're not going to do your job anymore, that your boss sits down with you and says, well, you know, here's the thing. You're not really performing, but gosh, you're just really a nice person. So will you, will you just keep drawing your paycheck. You know, I, most of you probably don't have jobs like that. If you do, I'd love to hear about it. But you know, most of you probably your jobs are based on your performance. And maybe for some of you, you, you have relationships like that. And, and maybe some of you had a, a marriage like that. And there was some point when you just weren't, you weren't performing the way they wanted. And they were like, goodbye. And, you know, that happens in our society. And it's sad and it's hurtful. But, you know, we, could, we just pretty much live in a world where there's a lot expected of us. And we feel the pressure quite a bit. Now, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17 today. And Acts chapter 17 is like, it just stands in stark contrast to all of this performance-based pressure that you and I feel. And so in Acts chapter 17, we're going to look at a, a little speech, kind of a sermon that's given by a guy named Paul. Or when we first meet him in the book of Acts, his name was Saul. And Saul was a Jew who lived in Israel during the time of Jesus and the disciples in the early church. In fact, he probably, given his position and when he lived, it wouldn't be uh, surprising that he actually um, saw Jesus face to face at one point and heard Jesus teaching um, because of his position. He probably did. And, and he was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees are kind of in the upper echelon of the, the leaders of Judaism. It was a very, very exclusive group limited to just a certain amount of people. We know that Pharisees were extremely well-educated, as, as Paul was, very accomplished. He was probably wealthy given his position, and he would have been a very powerful person. And Paul was passionate. He, he was devoted to a, a theology that said this, if you want to be right with God, all right, if you want to have a good relationship with God, then it requires that, that you take all of these rules and all of these laws that, that have been given to us in the Old Testament and, and, and rituals and, and a moral code. And if you're a guy, it even involves surgery. You know, it's just like serious stuff. You got to take all this stuff and just pack it all in this, in this wheelbarrow and pick it up. And then you just got you just to push this stuff through life. It's really up to your willpower and your sheer energy to see if you can, if you can handle it, to carry your own weight and prove to God that you're good enough to be accepted by him and, and good enough to be his child and go to heaven when this life is over. So this is Paul. Like having a relationship with God is very much performance based. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus is preaching this message he calls the gospel. Uh, literally, it means the good news. He's preaching this, this good news. And, and the gospel is not about working your way to God at all. It's about trusting. Those are two completely different things. Now, if you've been going to church for a while, I know we all know oh, it's trusting, it's not religion, but you gotta understand, man, when Paul heard this, this would have been like, what? I've never heard anything like that, right? No, if you wanna have a relationship with God, you gotta work for it, man. Pick up your, your load and carry it. And, and Jesus comes along and he's like, no, 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 no. It's not like that at all. It's all about trusting. Jesus said, just trust in me as, as God in the flesh and trust in, in the work I'm going to do. Trust in the work that he does for us 
on the cross. Now, because of this, Paul hated Christianity. He didn't just kind of not like Christianity. Paul hated Christianity. I don't know if you've ever met anyone who hates Christianity. I have a couple friends over the years who hate Christianity, and because of it, they pretty much hate me and what I believe. And, and Paul was a guy who hated Christians and hated the church because he thought it was heresy. He thought it was a lie. He thought that it would send people straight to hell. And quite frankly, he felt very threatened by the gospel because if the gospel was true, then that means all of the stuff that he'd done and his devotion and his sacrifice was all worthless. It was all a huge mistake. So not only does Paul not accept the gospel, he's, per, he's trying to shut it down. So he's persecuting Christians. He's, he's persecuting the church. When he finds Christians, um, he often has them thrown into prison or he has them beaten or he has them driven out of their, their, their town. And some of them he had put to death. In fact, Stephen was part of the very first church's very first board of deacons. It's like one day they were sitting around and going, we could use another group of leaders. Let's have deacons to, to be a, the word deacon means to serve. So let's get some servants. And they had a little church meeting and they voted in some deacons. And then these deacons, there's a guy named Stephen and he was a pretty outspoken deacon and he was preaching Jesus one day. And some, some Jews came along and they said, we don't like this guy. This is heresy. And they picked up stones and they killed him. Kind of makes you want to be a deacon, right? Woo! And so, and so the first deacon uh, is put to death, and it, we're told that Paul was there supporting the whole thing. Like, yeah, he really felt like they were doing God a favor, doing God a service by having this Christian put to death. So then one day, Paul is traveling to a city called Damascus. He'd been persecuting Christians in Jerusalem. And now he's going to take this little act on the road. He's going to go about 120 miles north. And he's going to go to, to this place called Damascus. And he's going to have Christians arrested. He's going to find out where they worship God. He's going to go to their church services. He's going to have them arrested. He's going to have some of them put in jail. Some of them taken back to Jerusalem and beaten, put in prison. And some of them possibly put to death. But while he's going there on this, this journey, journey, he's struck down. He's literally knocked to the ground by a bright light. It just happens to be Jesus. They have a little come to Jesus meeting. They have a little discussion. And at the end of the discussion, Paul realizes he's been, he's, he's been gone, going down the wrong road and he literally sees the light and he becomes a Christ follower. So now many years later, we come to Acts chapter 17. Paul's been serving Jesus and traveling and sharing the gospel. And now he's in Athens. And what he says in Acts chapter 17 is so huge. I just wanted to take a weekend to talk about this with you. In fact, really just to talk to you about two verses. But I want to set up the story for you. So I'm going to start reading in Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Let me read this for you. Now, while Paul was waiting uh, for them in Athens, that is, he's waiting for some um, other Christians to come and join him in ministry. Uh, he, was, he was greatly distressed to see that this city was full of idols. So here's one of the things we know about Athens. They, they were really religious people. They were really into serving gods, but they never really kind of knew which the right God was. So anytime somebody would come to town and go, hey, I heard about a new God, they would build an a, a, a idol to that God, or they would build a, a statue to that God, or they would build a temple to that God, or they'd put an inscription on a wall because they really didn't know who God was. So they wanted to make sure they had every single basis covered. If there was any possible God, 
God. They, they would put up. And so they're very religious. So Paul's walking through this town. And he sees all these, all these temples and idols to these God, gods. And so he began to reason in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. That's where um, the, the Jews would gather on the weekend on, on Saturday during the Sabbath. And, and they would go to the synagogue. And there they would worship God. And so Paul began to go to the synagogues. And he would preach Jesus to them. As well as in the marketplace day by day. So, you know, he'd go to Costco and, and he'd hang out where they're giving out food and he'd just start sharing the gospel with people, with anybody who happened to be there. Now, there was a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and they began to argue with, with Paul. And some of them asked him, they said, you know, what is this babbler trying to say? They'd never heard anything like this gospel before that you and I just take for granted. And, and others said he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news of the gospel about Jesus and the resurrection, and they'd never heard this before. This is all new stuff to them. Somebody comes to town and goes, hey, you can have a relationship with God based on, on the grace of God. And people are like, what? That's crazy. We've never, we've never heard anything like that before. So in verse 19, it says that, so they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is kind of an opened open court where people would come and debate and argue and talk about gods and philosophy and all this stuff. And they asked him a question. They said, we would like to know about this new teaching that you were presenting. Again, funny, because we're like, you know, what's new about it? We hear it all the time. But this is new to them. They said, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and, and we want to know what they mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening about the latest ideas. That, that's what they did, so they want to hear about this. Now, in verse 22, it says this. So Paul stood up in the, in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said to them, because they have no idea that this man can, he can bring the preaching like nobody. And so he starts to preach a sermon. He says, men of Athens, now I see that in every way you are very religious. Now they probably took that as a compliment, but Paul's probably trying not to laugh. He's like, you guys are like off the chain here. Ridiculous. When it comes to like all the religions and the rituals, and this is, this is crazy stuff. He says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. Paul says, now, Nothing really kind of wraps up your culture like this. There, I saw an inscription and it said to an unknown God. So of course, you know, they were thinking we've, we, we worship hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gods, but we might have missed one. So they put up an altar to the unknown God. Just they're like, just in case we miss the real God, we'll just do the unknown God and hopefully that'll be good enough for him or her and, and, and everything will wash out in the end. And so Paul's probably not trying to laugh and he says, now, now what you worship is something unknown. Paul's like, I'm about to proclaim to you. <laughs> so Paul's like, I don't know who made that statue, but God bless you because I'm about to just walk through that open door. And the next two verses just really absolutely stand out to me. Been thinking about them for months. He says this. He begins to preach and he says, the God who made the world and everything that is in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples that are built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. You, you have to understand this is like, they would have been like, What? You know, he doesn't dwell in a, in a statue or in a temple. What? He doesn't need us to serve him because that's all they did was serve their gods and perform rituals all day long. 
He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else in it. So this is so huge. This is so revolutionary. And again, you know, 2,000 years, we kind of sit here and go, yeah, we know this stuff, but this is amazing. What, what he was telling them, he, he called God the Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, so he's just trying to cover all the bases, right? Lord means, we would say today, he's large and in charge, okay? He's the man. He's the Lord of heaven and he's the Lord of earth, all right? Now, 2,000 years later, we have like systematic theology, right? So we've kind of, we're a little more sophisticated. Paul just called him Lord of heaven and earth. But today, we have kind of a systematic theology or a doctrine of God. Uh, we talk about the attributes of God and there are many, many, many attributes or, or, or facets of God. I put a few of them in your notes this morning because I think they kind of help us get to where we want to go. So let me just give you a few attributes or, or characteristics of, or qualities of God. Just a, a couple, just kind of scratching the surface. First of all, we often talk of God as being holy. Now that comes straight from the Bible. The Bible refers to God as holy. And that word holy means that God exists in, in majesty and glory um, above all of creation. And God is completely free from every imperfection and every moral impurity. Now that's foreign to us because we don't know anybody like that. You've never met anybody who's, who's perfect. Um, you just spend some time with them and you'll figure that out. And you know that you yourself are not Perfect, but God is completely, absolutely perfect from beginning to end. And that word holy sometimes means something that is just separate from everything else because it's so unlike everything else. And of course, that's not like us because in reality, we're more like everyone around us than not like them. But God is completely unlike anyone or anything else. He's holy. Sometimes we, we refer to God as completely other you know, he's holy. Another thing that God is, is he's independent. That means that God is, is self-existent, that his existence is grounded only in himself. He doesn't need anyone or anything else to be alive or, or to exist. He's complete in himself. Now that's not like us again, because we are incredibly dependent creatures. You know, we were dependent. We, we wouldn't even be born if it wasn't for God who created us. True. And, and we wouldn't have lived uh, to, to, to be older people if we didn't have someone who nurtured us and fed us and changed us and, you know, took care of us. And, and uh, even as we get older in life, we were dependent on other people to educate us. And we needed other people to give us a job and a paycheck. And even as a husband or a wife or a mother or father, you don't, we don't do any of those things well independently. We need other people to help us. We're very independent. But God is absolutely independent. God is eternal. He's not created. He has no beginning. He has no ends. He's not limited to time. Sometimes we think of God. I used to think of God like if I thought of a timeline, I'd always think like God is on a timeline that never ends. And that's weird. But I always thought it was weirder to think God, you know, but the, the line backwards goes forever. So there's no beginning for God. It's like, I, I always think like, would that be confusing? Because I can, I can hardly remember what happened like a week ago, would it be confusing for God to be thinking, oh yeah, I remember like, oh, well, when was that? Because it would just be like a blur. Just how could it go on and on? But of course, the problem is that God doesn't exist on a line of time. I mean, God exists outside of time. 
There is no time for God where he is. There's no past and present and future. As he looks at us, we, he sees us with a past, present, and future, but he doesn't have one. It's all the same. He doesn't age. He doesn't get older or younger. I no, no. Uh, um, God is omnipresent. Uh, that is all present. That God is not limited or bound by space, but he's present throughout all space. In fact, we'd put it this way, if that doesn't seem too confusing. Um, it, God is everywhere, all the time, at all times. So that means, as I understand it, God just isn't everywhere uh, right now, but he's everywhere right now. He's everywhere not just now, but in the past and in the future, all at the same time. I know we just got to move on, but these are the kind of things that I got a headache about this week. um, God's omnipotent. He's all powerful. He can do all things. And you know, it says all things consistent with his holy nature and his will. God cannot sin, but he's still all powerful because he can do everything that he wants to do, everything that he determines to do. I remember in Bible college, sitting around at night, you know, having the debate, can God create a rock so big he can't pick it up? And, you know, thinking it was a trick question. Of course, the answer is no, because there's no limit to what God can do. Um, And I, I don't know about you, but I find that pretty amazing. God is omniscient. He knows all things past present and future. He knows all things actual and he knows all things possible and all things probable. Again, I find that amazing. I can't even remember my email password, but God knows everything, you know, and, and it says God is truth. That means uh, that it refers to the complete veracity and the dependability of God's character and words and actions. He doesn't just know what's true. He is what's true. What's true is, is measured against God. Because he is what's true. There's a lot more characteristics of God and, and we don't have time to get into more. But when you add all of it up, what you end up with is this, this being that's perfect, that's complete in himself. He's absolutely complete. There's nothing that anyone or anything can do or say to add to God or to make him more than he already is. Now, Part of the reason Paul points this out is because when you realize that about God, you suddenly realize that this is either the the best news ever or it's the worst news ever. If you're a person who feels like you're strong and self-sufficient and and you have the ability to be morally in sync with God, and if you feel like you're able to make independent contributions to God and his kingdom work, then this is bad news because Paul's saying you are deluded (laughs) because there's nothing you'll ever be able to do to add to God because he's already absolutely perfect. And this is why Paul uh, felt so threatened when he first heard the gospel. Because Paul's identity rested on his efforts and his accomplishments. What made Paul walk so tall through town was because he had done these things and he had accomplished these things. It it, it all came down to the fact that Paul felt like he served God with resolve and accuracy and that had become his his identity. Now suddenly here comes the gospel and Paul would term it later this way. He said, here was the, the, the bad news for him. God is not served by human hands. As though God needed anything. Now, when Paul first figured that out, that was not good news to him. It was like he'd been preparing his entire life for the final exam. And then he realized he'd been studying the wrong material. And now he, he was in trouble. But on the other hand, this is the best news in the world. If you realize that you are weak and helpless 
and sinful and wretched and that you could do no good thing apart from God who works through you. Notice what he says here. It is God who gives to all people. He says life and breath and just in case that doesn't cover it all, everything else. That word life literally means the coming into the world. So what he says is we were all dependent on God to give us life. And if God hadn't given us life, we would never have you know, come into this world. And, and the word breath is kind of a reference to right now. So what he's saying is, you're sitting here and you're listening to a message and you're taking another breath. That breath came from God. God is the one who not only gave you life, but God is the one who keeps you alive. So as you take in a deep breath, thank God for that because that comes from him and, and everything else. You're all very, very bright, intelligent people, you know? God says, you know, he gave you the ability to be an intelligent person. You all have wonderful personalities, you know? You're, very, you're all very winsome and outgoing. You're all very beautiful people. And God says, that's great, but just remember where that came from. Next time you look in the mirror and go, wow, look at that. <laughs> just remember, that came from God. He's the one who created you that way. And, and that kind of brings us to the big idea for this weekend. Usually I give you the big idea right off the top. We waited a little while because I wanted to kind of set this up. Here's our big idea for this weekend. What Paul's really trying to say about the gospel is this. The gospel's not a help wanted sign. The gospel is a help available sign, right? God does not need our help. God does not need our skill or our endorsement. God didn't send Jesus down because God's just really in need of an endorsement from you or really in need of your skill. And so Jesus came down and, and he put out a sign, help one and God needs your help. Please help us out. Jesus never put out a help wanted sign because he doesn't need help. Jesus came to post a help available sign. That's exactly what he said in Mark. Notice what it says here. For even the son of man, that's Jesus. For even the son of man did not come to be served. Okay. Jesus did not come to be served. Jesus did not come so people could give him their time and their money and their stuff and their, no, 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 no. That's not why he came. He came to serve. Jesus came to serve, not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many, right? How did Jesus come to serve us? Well, more than anything else, he came to give his life as a ransom because the Bible says that, that God created you and me. He created us, he designed us, he created us for a purpose. So he gave us life and relationships and wealth and time and breath, all of this stuff for a reason. But the Bible says that we decided to take all the stuff God gave us that we would use to follow him and have a relationship with him. We pushed him off the throne and we said, I'm going to do what I want with my time. I'm going to do what I want with my relationships. I'm going to do what I want with my money and my sexuality and all that. I'm going to do what I want to do, God. And the Bible calls that sin. The Bible says all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is, is what? It's death. The wages of sin is death. And what we deserve is a righteous judgment of God. So Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to meet our greatest need, to do for us what we would never, ever, ever be able to do for ourselves. He came to pay for our debt so that we could be right with God. And when it comes right down to it, Paul says, I don't know any other better way to describe what Jesus does, but he serves us. He served us through the cross by paying for our debt so we could be forgiven and have a relationship with God.
And the thing that Jesus hammered home again and again, and the thing that Paul hammered home in his, his preaching again and again and again, this is the gospel. The gospel is that the God that we serve is the God who actually serves us. He serves us, not the other way around. And the big question is, will we believe that? And will we receive that? In John 1.12, it, it says it this way, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name. So for everyone who believes in the person and the work of Christ, and for everyone who receives that, that, that is they place their trust in what Jesus has done. And they say, God, I'm no longer going to try to be right with you through serving you, but through being served by you. When we do that, it says that we have the right to become the children of God. Not serving, not working for God, or working for his merit, but trusting Jesus Trusting him. And that is the essence of the gospel. That's the essence. And that's the essence of Christianity. What Christianity means, what it means to be a Christian is this, this. It means every morning when I get up, I begin in a conversation with God and I say, God, today I need you. We talked about this last week. I need you to be my all today. And God, if you are not my all today, then there's no hope for me today. So I need you to come and be my, I can't be your all today, God. There's nothing I can offer to you, but I need you to be my all. I need you to be my savior. Because if you will not be my savior today, then there's no hope for me to be saved. And there's no way for me to have, have a righteous life with you. We come to God and we say, God, today I need you to be my king because my tendency is that I'll make myself king today or I'll make my job king today or I'll make some project king and I know that's not gonna work so I need you to be my king. It's not my natural tendency. I don't really know how to make you king so I need you to serve me by showing me how to make you my king today. I need you to be my treasure today. We talked about that last week. Be my all. Be the thing that I value above everything else. Now, God, this world's full of stuff and money and treasures and things that are shiny and new, and, and I tend to gravitate towards those. So I need you to come to me today and show me how to have you be my treasure. I need you to be my hope today when I'm discouraged I need you to be my guide and my wisdom today when I don't know what to do. I need you to be my strength when I get tired. Do you ever get tired? God, I need you to be my strength and to be my joy and to be my, my power. God, I need you for every undertaking in life today, for every thought and relationship and decision. So God, I need you to work in me today. Now, I don't tend to think in these terms, but as I've, as I've been preparing for this series and just going through this passage and, and thinking about this, it's just, it seems weird, but it really is the essence of the gospel that we come to God and say, God, there's no hope without you, so I need you to serve me today. I need you to work in me today, not because I deserve it, but because I belong to you. And so I need you to serve me today. I need you to show me how to love you. See, because none of us in our, in our own power are ever gonna figure out how to love God. Maybe you've tried. Have you ever had those thoughts? I wish I loved God more. How do you do that? By just trying harder? <laughs> by just, very, you know, by singing louder? That doesn't make you love God more. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. So if I want to learn how to love God more, I need God to show me how to do that. I need God to work in me and fill me with love. Then I can love God more. It's where I come to God and say, God, I need you to serve me today by showing me how to submit my will to you because my will always just wants to bust out and do its own thing. So come and show me how to, how to surrender to you today. I need to be able to recognize what's truth in our world and what's a lie in our world. And I need you to serve me by showing me that. 
and, and help me to see your worth today and to see your beauty today. That is the essence of the gospel. <laughs> That's the essence of Christianity and the Christian life. So here's the question, of course, because you may have been thinking, aren't we in a series on worship? And what does this have to do? We haven't even talked about worship this morning. What's up with that? Well, I would say this, that, that what's true of the gospel is also true of worship. That the essence of, of the gospel is coming to God with empty hands. And the essence of worship is the same thing. True worship is coming to God with empty hands. Not with full hands, but with empty hands. Where we come to God and worship. We don't come to God with, hey God, here's my good works and here's my ability and here's a great song and I could play a great guitar solo and I got money to give you today. That's not worship. Worship is coming to God with empty hands so that we can receive from God. And we need to be careful because there is, a, there is a danger that we see in the church sometimes today in this thinking that worship is what we give to God. Now you may be thinking, so what's wrong with that? That sounds like a good thing. But here's the danger. When we, when we begin to make worship what we give to God instead of just God himself, then slowly it becomes a performance-based thing. And we can suddenly fall into that trap of thinking worship is what I give to God and how good it is. We start to think worship is when the, when the band's rocking or, or when the song's really good, then that's, that's worship. Worship is when I'm able to give a really good offering in the, and when it comes around at the end of the service because worship is what I give to God. Worship is, you know, when, when, when the coffee's really good and I'm feeling good and I just have a good feeling in the service or, you know, see, when I like that video or like that introduction to a song or whatever it is. And, and after a while, we just, little by little, the, the focus of worship shifts from God and his majesty and glory to, our, to the quality of our performance. But that's not the gospel because the gospel's never been about your performance. The gospel is always about coming to God with empty hands and receiving God's grace. And that is the essence of worship. Worship is coming to God with empty hands to receive from God. That's why in the Bible we hear sometimes about people raising their hands. In the Old Testament, when they would raise their hands to God in worship, it was always understood. Hands were raised and they were open. And the whole idea was, God, I need something. And what I need is you. We don't come to God with with hands full of stuff. We come to God with empty and open hands to receive from God. And what we receive from God is God. That's what it means in Psalm 42 when the psalmist says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. The gospel is about what God has to offer to us. It's, the gospel is about taking God's goodness and his glory. And then we said it this last week, just reflecting it back to God. So worship is kind of like, well, it's kind of like this. When I was a kid and Mother Day, Mother's Day was coming up, which, right, it is, right? Guys, you're all on top of that. So when Mother's Day was coming, which is coming, um, I would go to my mom about a week before Mother's Day and I would ask my mom for some money. And then my mom would give me some money and I would go to the store and I would buy my mom a gift and then I would wrap it up and I would give it to my mom on Mother's Day. Now, of course, the irony was really she bought the gift, right? And the only reason I could give her was something was because she gave me something. And that's, a, that's just a beautiful picture of worship. Worship is when God gives me something, I'm able to give him something back. 
So maybe God answers a prayer and then I'm able to give him praise for that, for that request. But that came from God, not me. God gives me a paycheck and I'm able to give God back some of what he gave me. But it came from God. I come to church and we sing to God and that song connects with me and I give to God a song. That's beautiful. God loves that. But you know that song came from, from God. And so worship in its, in its essence is just reflecting back to God the beauty and the wonder and the, the great things that he gives us. And, and understand God loves that. God loves it when he gives to us and we give back to him. But Paul's just saying, just remember where that comes from. That doesn't come from you. And worship isn't based on your performance and being good enough. It's not worship. Worship is just like the gospel. It's about God and what he has given to us. And I thought that it might be appropriate for us to close the sermon this weekend by taking communion together. So the guys are going to get communion and they're going to come forward and, and they're going to hand that out to you right now. And as they hand it out to you, I want to tell you why communion is such a great way to close the service. Because they're going to pass around um, a plate and it's got a little, little piece of bread on it. It's got a little cup on it. And the only way that you're going to be able to take that bread in that cup is if you let go of the things that are in your hands right now. Otherwise, right, you can't, you can't pick them up. So around comes the bread and around comes the cup. And if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you when they come around to take a piece of bread and to take a cup, to take with empty hands, to take hold of God and what he's done for you. So the guys are going to come forward right now and they're going to pass that out. And communion is such a beautiful picture of what the gospel and what worship is. Coming to God with empty hands and receiving. And what we receive is God, God in the flesh. As they're passing it out, let me just read for you. This is something Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11. He's talking about communion and, and what it is and why we do it. I'm going to read this for you while the guys pass out communion. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes because he is coming back. The bread and the cup a beautiful picture of the gospel like nothing else and a beautiful picture of worship.